0: And we are live. Good evening and good day, everybody. Uh, it's great to see you all. Welcome to episode 29 of the Ask Abhijit show. So, let me take a look at who all is here. Who all is with us? I can see Aryan Yadav Jaydek Chit Gokul Mahesh Patil Manisha Vinayak Radhakrishnan Arun Bhattacharya. Aryan Yadav Jaydek Chit. Anusha, Arjun, Srinivasan Ayangar, Anirudh Sutar, Sahil Kumar, Dungar Singh Chauhan, Ayravi Trivedi, Om Patak, Vinayak Radhakrishnan, Amar Singh, Mahesh Patil, Abhijit Katiyar, Pawan, Sanjay. It's great to see you all. Great to see you all so as you know today we are doing history which is i think everyone's favorite topic so let's get into the questions with question number one okay question number one is from anoop anoop asks what is the brahmi script and what's the difference between the brahmi script and the devanagari script okay first of all it is not the brahmi script it is the brahmi script brahmi script so this is an ancient script that uh, emerged sometime in the about two and a half thousand years before today. So let me show you what it looks like. Let me share my screen here. Okay. okay, let's take a look at this. So this is the Brahmi script or Brahmi alphabet. Yeah, it emerged somewhere in 500 BCE approximately. So this is what it looks like. It's an ancient script. As you can see, these are the consonants in the script. They go just as any as the Devanagari alphabet. You know, cha cha etc. So this script, even though it's an ancient script, can be used to write any modern Indian language. So it's just one of the many scripts that. Uh, emerged in india over the ages the brahmi script the karosh script before that you have the undeciphered indus valley or saraswati uh, civilization script which has still not been undeciphered, uh, still not been deciphered and then you have many modern scripts that we uh, that are in use today so many of the scripts that are in use today are descended from brahmi so this is one of the old scripts ancient scripts of india and how is it different from Devanagari? Well, this is a Devanagari script, if you can see this here. So this this script uh, emerged during the 8th century, about 1200 years ago. It, is descend, it descended from the ancient Gupta script called Nagari. And this is the script that is used to write various Indian languages, such as Hindi, Marathi, etc. So this is a modern script. This is still in use right now. So that is the difference between Brahmi and Devanagari. Devanagari is the modern script that's used to write Sanskrit, Hindi, etc. Brahmi was also used to write Sanskrit and various Prakrit languages, etc. about two and a half thousand years ago, beginning around two and a half thousand years ago. So that is, in very short, the difference between between Brahmi and Devanagari. Okay, let's go to question number two. Okay, the modern science of linguistics says that the North Indian languages are members of the Indo-European language family that included Persian, Russian, Spanish, English, etc. While Southern Indian languages such as Tamil are not members of the Indo-European language family. Do you accept this? Does this mean that Tamils are not Indian or Aryan and that Dravidian is a real thing? Okay, good question. So first of all, you have stated that the modern science of linguistics. Well, I disagree with this very premise premise that uh, linguistics is a science. Linguistics, my friends, is not a scientific discipline. And why is that so? First of all, it lacks a clearly defined set of rules or laws. Secondly, it is unfalsifiable. A scientific theory or a scientific discipline has to be falsifiable. If you have a linguistic theory, it has to be falsifiable. If it is to be considered to be science. So linguistics is not falsifiable. It's unfalsifiable. Thirdly, whatever laws exist in uh, linguistics, these laws are highly malleable. They depend on consensus. And when you have something like consensus between experts, it means that you have politics and coalition building. So so that's why it's not a science. Linguistics can be considered to be a science only when it deals with a logical, rules-based language, such as Paninian Sanskrit. So that's the only language that is 100% logical, context-free, and rules-based. So linguistics can be considered to be scientific only when you look at Panini Sanskrit. Right, And the fact that linguistics lacks a well-accepted and clearly defined set of rules or laws, unlike physics, for instance, this makes linguistics prone to being misused to prove an incorrect hypothesis. So I hope that clarifies the fact that linguistics is not a science. Okay. Linguistics is all about coalitions and consensus and all that nonsense, which means if you have a group of experts who are considered a group of individuals who have been given the title of eminent linguists or, or experts, then they can get together and they can put forth any theory they like. And then it becomes the accepted consensus. That's not how science works. Right. And yes, so... Uh, Northern Indian languages, Sanskrit, etc., are members of the Indo-European language family. Now, that, now, clearly there is a connection between all these languages, and the oldest known languages, language of this family is Vedic Sanskrit, right? And like you said, Persian, Spanish, Russian, French, English, Latin, etc., are members of this family of this language family. Now, southern Indian languages like Tamil are classified in a different language family called the the Dravidian language family in linguistics, right? Now, it is well known that uh, genetically there is no difference between the people of northern, southern, eastern, western India, but there clearly is a disparity in the languages yes so i don't know how how closely tamil is related to telugu for instance or kannada for instance i think telugu has at least at least 40% sanskrit vocabulary but yes the uh, linguistic uh, grammar and all that may be different yeah so this this doesn't mean that tamil or kannada or telugu etc are not indian by the way yeah and we don't even have a definition of what is aryan So, the northern Indian languages are classified as Indo Aryan languages, part of the larger Indo European group. So, these are all arbitrary classifications. What needs to be what's happened is that this is all a consequence of the theories that were developed by people like Max Muller and other later linguists in the 19th and 20th centuries. So, these theories are all developed by white men, by Europeans. These are Eurocentric theories. There is no Linguistic research being done in India. There are no linguistics experts in India. Name one. I mean, people will say this, that Iravatan Mahadevan is some great linguistic expert. And he deciphered the so-called Harappan, the the he supposedly deciphered the Harappan script. That is nonsense. I have gone through his papers. It is complete nonsense, his so-called decipherment of the Harappan script. So he was no linguistics expert, by the way. He he, is, he has this great reputation and he's like worshipped as a god, Iravatan Mahadevan but well clearly his uh, analysis and his claims don't stand up to scrutiny so the fact is what needs to happen is that we need to start researching linguistics especially the indian languages from an indian perspective with and it should be done by it should be driven by indian experts that's what needs to happen so far everything that we learn about indian history and indian linguistics is learned from the research that Europeans have done or Westerners have done and the conclusions they have drawn and they have uh, come up with these language families and all that so we need to I would say we need to do this research a priori from, from scratch and construct our own language families based upon the logic that we have inherited from thousands of years from our ancestors the linguistic logic because the birth of linguistics as a discipline as a science, starts with Panini. Panini himself did cite a number of older linguists who came before his time and whose work, whose works are now lost, but he has cited those works. So the science of linguistics was there in India. And when it was being done in India, it was actually a science. It was all algorithmic and logical. Today, these Europeans have messed it up. There's no logic to it. So we need to rediscover our indigenous science of linguistics. And then we need to apply it to our languages. Unfortunately, there is no Institute of Linguistics in India. There's no research being done. So these are the things that I I speak about often because these are very uh, glaring facts. So I uh, disagree that Tamils are not Indian or Tamils are not Aryan. And that Dravidian is a real thing. This is all nonsense. These are foreign categories. These are categories that foreigners have imposed upon us. I do not accept. I do not recognize any of these foreign categories. We need to come up with our own categories, with our own understanding of who we we are. That's what needs to happen. Okay. So first of all, there is no such thing as an Aryan ethnicity or Aryan culture or Aryan language group or any such thing all indians are the same all right even tamil even even the people of southern india are aryans if 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 there is such a thing as an aryan ethnicity it is the people of the indian subcontinent and the people of iran that is the only acceptable aryan ethnicity europeans are not aryans i mean some people have asked me in the past that i spoke about the indo-greeks and some indians have some greek blood does it mean that we are aryans so the assumption is that the greeks are aryans So the assumption is that the lighter-skinned people or white-skinned people are Aryans and darker-skinned people are not Aryans. That is nonsense. These are the misconceptions that our education system has poured into our heads. The only ethnicity that can be considered to be an Aryan, if Aryan is an ethnicity, is the Indo-Iranian people. The people of the entirety of the Indian subcontinent and the Iranians. So I hope that answers this question. It's, yeah, right. So let's go to the next question. This is by Mayank. Europeans initially colonized the world for spices. Then why is it that most of their food is still bland? (laughs) Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, you should try Dutch food. I mean, if any Dutch person is listening to me, I'm, I'm sorry. I mean, very nice people, but try their food. It's terrible. I mean, it looks great. The moment you taste it, it's all sour. Everything is sour. I don't know why it is that way. So, yes, you're right. European food is extremely bland. I mean, take a look at the food that you find in the British Isles. My goodness. The only only condiments they use are salt and pepper. That's it. And just a little bit of pepper. And that's it. That's it. It's all spiced. So, the truth is that the Europeans did not colonize the world for spices They colonized the world for plunder. Initially, what happened was that when the Ottomans cut off India's access to Europe and vice versa, they also cut off Europe's access to India. So when they conquered the present-day region of Turkey, which is mostly Anatolia and the western part is Thrace, ancient Thrace. So that, that essentially cut off the land route between India and western part of Eurasia which is now called Europe and therefore the ancient uh, trade in spices that had been going on for, for many centuries since the Roman times that abruptly came to an end right with the fall of the uh, of the Byzantine Empire and that's why they started I mean they craved these spices. I think Roman food was better, better tasting than present-day european food in many places the romans did use lots of indian spices so i think that's that was that so the cutting off of the trade route gave the initial impetus to the europeans to discover a different uh, different uh, way of reaching india by sea and that's what gave rise to these uh, journeys by columbus and vasco da gama the, which which were clearly uh, these journeys these quests to rediscover india ha- did not were not for the sake of spices there were there were these papal bulls okay the pope had issued uh, what's called these bulls or directives to these uh, to these uh, voyagers and they were directed they were told that uh, the pope gave them the authority to claim any non christian land for the crown, whatever crown they served. So Christopher Columbus set out to conquer India on behalf of the Spanish crown. Their intention was to colonize and destroy India. And Vasco da Gama did the same thing on behalf of the Portuguese. And his behavior, once he reached India, is very indicative of his hostile, aggressive, and malafide intent. If you if you see the, his actions, Vasco da Gama's actions, once he reached the coast of India, I mean, he burned a ship full of men and women and children. Yeah, He stole all the, all the valuables and then burned the ship, burned these people alive. He uh, used cannons against Indian cities, cannons on his ships, etc. So these were, from the very beginning, uh, expeditions that had v- a very malified intent. The, expedi- the intent was to conquer and colonize. So the colonization was not for the sake of spices. The spices was just the initial impetus. The, the real uh, reason for the colonization was to plunder the lands, mainly India, later also Africa, the East Indies, etc. And to some extent, some parts of China. So that is what happened. So the food, I mean, your food habits don't really change. Uh, so that's why the food is still bland. European food, we know it's it's quite bland. Try German food, try Dutch food, Try try British food. I think the French and the and the, and the Italians have better tastes, but overall it's quite bland. Even the Greeks have better taste. So Mediterranean food is nicer, it's tastier. Uh, but overall European food food, like you said, is bland. Okay, which is the original language, Prakrit or Sanskrit? Well, first of all, there is no such language as Prakrit the prakrits are a group of languages these are upper branch languages these are corruptions of sanskrit the oldest known language in the world is vedic sanskrit then you had classical sanskrit from the, from the time of panini panini is believed to have lived around 500 bce approximately we don't really know if that is correct maybe he lived much he lived much before that we don't really know the accepted consensus among experts, among eminent historians, is that Panini lived somewhere around 300 or 500 BCE. Right, So that is considered to be the era of classical Sanskrit or Paninian Sanskrit. The Prakrits came after that. The Prakrits were a group of languages that eventually gave birth to the languages that are spoken in northern, western, etc. India today. So the Prakrits are Upper Branch languages. These are corruptions of the classical Sanskrit. These are basically degradations of Sanskrit. These are various degraded and corrupted dialects of Sanskrit. Gandhari, the ancient Gandhari language that, that was spoken across Central Asia. That is an example of a Prakrit language. And then even Pali could be, I think Pali is considered to be a pre-Prakrit language, perhaps. It, it was the language, it was Definitely a corruption of the Sanskrit language. It is—it's the language that was spoken in among the common people during the Mauryan times, during the time of the Buddha. It's a, especially the Buddha, yeah, the Buddha's time. So the Buddha is uh, believed to have lived around 500 BCE, approximately in that in that time frame, if the experts are correct. I'm not really sure if that is true, but yeah, okay. So the Buddha did preach in Sanskrit in Pali instead of Sanskrit because he wanted to reach the common. Man and woman. So, to summarize, to answer your question in brief, Sanskrit is the oldest known language in the entire world. I mean, Vedic Sanskrit. The Prakrits are descended, descendants, these are corruptions of Sanskrit. These are various corrupted dialects of Sanskrit and they gave rise to the modern Indian languages, the the northern and western Indian languages, those that are classified under the Indo-Aryan language family and the Indo-Iranian language family as well. Okay, This is by Andrew. Some anthropologists claim that horses do not exist in the fossil record of the Indian subcontinent before the so-called Aryan invasion. Can you address this? Obviously, horses were an essential part of the chariot warfare described in Sanskrit texts. Why do they make this claim and how to refute it? This is an excellent question, sir. So yes, they do make this, this claim that uh, there were no horses in India. And that's why it is the foreign Aryans who brought the horses from Central Asia. They brought the horses and chariots into India during the invasion. And that's why you have this reference to horses, etc. But they claim that before, that during the Harappan times, etc., there were no horses. The horses only came with the Aryan invaders of India. So that is the claim. So let me refute this claim. It's a very good question. Uh, Let me share an image okay if you can see this so this uh, is an excerpt from now you can see it this is an excerpt from a go, from a book called the history of ancient india portraits of a nation by kapoor Kam, by kamlesh kapoor so it describes clearly that there is about the early evidence of horses in the Ganga and the Saptasindhava regions. Horses are described in the Vedas, we know that. Rig Veda verse whatever describes that the horse is having 34 ribs, 17 sets of ribs. And this is also true for the Arabian horse. The Arabian horse also has 17 sets of ribs. And the Arabian horse is is known to have existed at least 10,000 years before today, at least. Okay, now the Central Asian horse has 36 ribs, which means 18 sets of ribs. Now in India, fossil remains of the Shivalik horse provides us with the archaeological proof of the fact that the Vedic horse is a native Indian breed. It has 17 sets of ribs, 30, 34 ribs in total. Okay, and there is clear evidence of the horse bones, etc. in various Saptasindhu uh, or, or Harappan archaeological sites such as Lothal, Kalibangan, Surkutta, Ropar in India, as well as in Mohenjo-Daro in Pakistan. And horse remains, both domestic and the wild variety, have been found at places such as Koldewa and Mahagara in the interior of India, dating to before 6500 BCE. So there is clear evidence that horses existed in India way before the so-called Aryan invasion. And is as early as 1924, Sir John Marshall, the then Director General of the ASI, recorded the presence of the smaller variety of horse at the site of the excavation at Mohenjo-Daro. So it, the book, this concludes that it's surprising that this 80-year-old record is missing from all the books on the subject of the homeland of the Vedic Indians, right? So here's a different image. This is... The upper image here, if you can see my mouse mouse pointer, is a horse figurine from Lothal, which is in present-day Saurashtra or Kutch, Western India, which is a Harappan era site, archaeological site. And here you have an ancient chess set from the same region. Chess was invented in India during the Harappan or pre-Harappan era. So this is an ancient chess set with a horse. As you can see, this is a horse. It's a horse chess piece. So once again, you have evidence of the horse in India. This is that figure in in more detail. And now we have this inconvenient fact. This is the Bimbekta Caves rock shelter in central India. This this dates back from the Upper Paleolithic era, which starts around 50,000 BCE up to around 10,000 BCE. Now, human habitation has been known in this place for at least 100,000 years. And as you can see, this ancient rock art in India depicts horse riders. It's very clear. I mean, it's unmistakable that these are horse riders. Here is another one. This seems to be a a scene that depicts a battle of some kind. People riding horses and holding javelins or spears. And here, once again, you have what's clearly a stallion or stallions, and these are ancient, very ancient paintings, right, so this is unmistakable, irrefutable evidence of the presence of horses in India thousands and thousands of years before today, and we have the evidence from the Harappan uh, region. In the Harappan sites, such as Lothal, Mohenjadaro, and even pre-Harappan sites, which means before this region became a proper civilization, an urban civilization, before that it was rural and it was like less developed. There is a so-called pre-Harappan phase. That's around 8,000 years before today. So even in that time, you find horse remains. So it is incredible. It's it's very surprising that you have this sort of... uh, misinformation that is being, being spread in the name of scholarship that there were no horses in India before the so-called Aryan invasion which is supposed to have happened three and a half thousand years before today. Now once again according to their own logic if there was an Aryan invasion three and a half thousand years ago which came in from Central Asia then why don't we have horses with 36 ribs in India? Why do we only have evidence of uh, archaeology i mean uh, fossils of horses with 34 ribs in india so it this is this makes it very clear that this so called uh, academic and scholarly claim by all these eminent historians is a complete outright lie and fabrication and this essentially puts to rest the entire horse argument in favor of the so called aryan invasion theory okay this is by deeraj Did Nehru help China to conquer Tibet by providing food supplies such as rice? Well, once again, we have to deal with the great Sri Nehru. So let me share an image, share a a website that I have, because you should not take my word for this. You should see it for yourself. Okay, so this is an article that references a book by Claude Ahpi, Nehru's India helped China conquer Tibet. So let's, let's read this. Let's read this together. So the Chinese invasion of Tibet, which culminated in the 1962 war between India and China, has often been portrayed as the great Chinese betrayal, a stab in the back, as Jawaharlal Nehru would say, with much pain and anguish. Claude RP in his 2017 book, Tibet, The Last Months of a Free Nation, provided, proved with fresh shreds of evidence that the notion of betrayal was a farce. It was a stab from the front, as M.J. Akbar observed in his biography on Nehru, for the then Prime Minister Shri Nehruji and his comrades refused to see the writing on the wall for more than a decade. In his latest book, Will Tibet Ever Find Her Soul Again?, RP ke- comes up with another explosive revelation. That Nehru's India supplied rice to the invading PLA troops in Tibet when they were busy rampaging and decimating the Tibetan way of life and culture in the early 1950s. The most grotesque incident of this period was the feeding of the PLA's troops with rice coming through India, writes the France based, France born expert on Tibet and China. Without Delhi's active support, the Chinese troops would not have been able to survive in Tibet. Tibet, before the massive Chinese influx of the 1950s, was a self-sufficient society, etc. Uh, They only ate barley, roast barley, known as Tsampa, which had been their staple food for centuries. The influx of fresh troops brought the first serious problem in the new coexistence between the Chinese occupants and the Lhasa government, the availability of foodstuff. To overcome the food crisis in Tibet, Chairman Mao and his comrades looked towards India. S.K. Krishnarthi, the Indian Trade Agent, ITA in Gyantse, mentioned that the Chinese government had requested the government of India for an agreement allowing facilities for the transport of food and other supplies through India. The Chinese government wanted transit facilities for 10,000 tons of food grains through India as a special case. Mr. Nehru first agreed, after careful consideration, to allow the transit of around 3,000 tons of rice to Tibet. Uh, while pointing out the transport problems, the government of India expressed their willingness to consider it together with all outstanding issues, etc. And sadly, but not surprisingly, the Tibetan part of the story was soon forgotten. Blinded by dark ideological lenses, or even duped by China's Bai Bai Chimera, India refused to see the true nature of communist China and its devastating present in, presence in Tibet. It did not even grasp that China was hitting out at India when it gave a call in the 17-point agreement to drive out imperialistic forces from Tibet because India had a diplomatic and even a military presence in Tibet. India had troops in Tibet before the Chinese invasion and even during the Chinese invasion. India also had... Uh, uh, Diplomatic presence and various other government officials. So, so basically, the Chinese uh, called for driving out aggressive imperialistic forces from Tibet, which they meant by by which they meant India. This rice diplomacy so- continued for well over four years. In 1954, it was re-emphasized that India would continue to supply rice with the People's Liberation Army stationed in Tibet. Rice which China would buy. Was intended exclusively for Tibet, etc. And then at the end of 1954, they did not need Indian rice anymore. So, this is the truth. This is not my opinion. And this is not the only article. This is just one article that illustrates the fact of what happened. So, basically, the Chinese soldiers who invaded Tibet. Would never have been able to survive in Tibet, let alone occupy it, had Shri Jawaharlal Nehru not fed them with Indian rice. At the time, India was a poor country. India had famines and all that because of the depredations of the British. And yet, India was busy feeding its rice to the invading Chinese soldiers in Tibet. So, so Mr. Nehru, the great statesman Shri Nehruji, aided and abetted the Chinese invasion of Tibet. Without Mr. Nehru, China would never have been able to occupy and conquer Tibet. These are hard facts. I am not making it up. I just showed you the article. So, yes, Dheeraj, it is true. Mr. Nehru did facilitate China's conquest of Tibet by providing critical food supplies. Rice to the Chinese. Ishan asks, what are your thoughts on the non-aligned movement and India's post-independence, post-World War II foreign policy of non-alignment as a whole? It was, what is is my thought? What are my thoughts? It was detrimental to India's interests. It harmed India immensely. The non-aligned movement was an exercise in mediocrity. It was an exercise in not pursuing your national interests. Mr. Nehru believed that he was a great world leader, a great statesman, and he wanted to propose an alternative form of of geopolitics in which small, insignificant countries get together and say that we are not aligned with either the USA, USA or the USSR. But this was all hypocrisy because Mr. Nehru basically turned India into a Soviet satellite state. India was a Soviet ally during the Cold War. It's well known. I mean, nobody can deny that fact. So India, on the, one, on the one hand, said that it was non-aligned. It was part of the non-aligned movement. On the other hand, it was a Soviet satellite state. So it was complete hypocrisy. It harmed India immensely. India would have benefited greatly if it had pursued its own national interest in a hard-nosed fashion. So this was this was one of the most terrible foreign policy blunders in India's modern history. It basically set the tone to what India has become today a soft punching bag kind of state, which can't influence affairs even in its immediate neighborhood. Ganesh asks, I have always wondered what was the actual size of the ancient cities described in the Mahabharata and Ramayana. What were they like compared to current cities and what was the politics like? As we hear about Janapadas and such in Ramayana, what's my insight? So, see if you look at the ancient, uh, if you look at ancient India, if you look at the the uh, peak of the Harappan era of India's civilization, then it was a vast, extensive, highly developed, highly urbanized, ha- completely industrialized, enormous geographical region which was greater than Mesopotamia and the Middle East and and Egypt put together. That's how big it was. It was completely industrialized. It was completely urbanized. right? And you had big cities. And the total population of this region at that time was around 5 million people. So the population was minuscule compared to what India's population is today. And therefore, the cities too were correspondingly smaller. If you look at the uh, extent of the cities of Harappa and Mohenjo-Daro, they are not really very big. But they are very well developed and they are very—they are perfectly, completely urbanized. And the largest site that we have is uh, is Rakigari, which again is not that large. So the population of the biggest cities would have been in, in maybe tens of thousands, perhaps, which is like nothing compared to today's size. Right. But for those days, it was great. It was like it was a, it was a great uh, it was very much for, for that time considering the total population was around 5 million so the city the scale and size of the cities was different it was much smaller than what it is today because the population was much less so that is the kind of size of the ancient cities that you asked about what was the uh, politics like so ancient india as you, as we know it had uh, these these mahajanapadas Now, the Mahajanapadas are a more recent phenomenon, but what the kind of uh, governance system you had during the Harappan phase of our civilization, it's not very well known. If you look at the uh, archaeological remains of these cities, you find that there are no royal palaces. And the most extensive architecture is reserved for public facilities like the public bath or the assembly hall or whatever, right? So there are no royal palaces. There is no sign of any aristocracy or royalty. So it looks like you had that sort of democracy, Ganatantra, even during the Harappan era of our civilization. And during the Mahajanapada era, we clearly know that these we had Ganatantra, which is democracy. So it was a democracy with um, a king at the top. So basically you would have an assembly of people who would elect the king. The king was not hereditary, right? The the uh, The title of king was not hereditary. Often it would be passed on from father to son, but through elections. So you had that sort of uh, democracy in in, ancient India. It was democracy with Indian characteristics. Even the Greeks have written about the fact that India was a democratic civilization. You had democracy in India. And this democracy dates far back, far before the Greek era. Um, I mean, before before Greece even existed as a nation or civilization. So India essentially is the birthplace of democracy and so that is the kind of politics we have, we had in India in that era. Tejas asks, who are the Mlechas described in the Mahabharat? They are even described in the Mahabharat war as well. Are they Greeks or Egyptians? Where, what were these outside civilizations? These were not civilizations. So the uh, best rough translation for the word mlecha into English is barbarian. So barbarian is a Greek and Roman term. The Greeks called people barbarians who were not. So anyone who was not Greek was a barbarian, according to the Greeks. Now according to this Sanskrit term mlecha, mlecha was any people, any kingdom or race of people who were non-Vedic, who did not follow the Vedic traditions. So this could also include, as you know, as I have spoken before, lots of Indian uh, kingdoms were established in Central Asia, north and west of the Himalayas. There were many waves of migrations outside of India, as is very well known even in the archaeological record, the Mittani, the Hittites, etc., the Kassites. So we know that Indians did go north and west out of India and they formed many kingdoms Uh, in these regions, Uh, Uttar Kuru, Uttar Madra, etc., north and west of India. So after some time, eventually over time, uh, they stopped practicing Vedic traditions in their entirety. So they basically became degraded Vedic people. Their their culture became degraded. And these are the people that were called Mlechas because they had stopped performing the Vedic rituals and traditions the way they were supposed to be performed. So that is one definition of mlecha, which means these are descendants of Indians, but who had become kind of non-Indianized to some extent. The other definition of Miletsha are completely non-Indian tribes or whatever. you know. So for example, the Greeks can be considered to be a non-Indian tribe. They are the descendants of the Rig Vedic Alina clan. But over the millennia, they became very much non-Indian. So the Greeks were called Mlechas and various other other tribes and ethnicities were also called Mlechas. So the best definition is those who don't follow the Vedic way of life. That is mlecha. So it is the best equivalent word in English is barbarian, someone who is not cultured and not civilized. That's what it means. Harshawardhan asks, why are there mentions of discrimination in the Mahabharata era, such as Iklavya, Karna, etc.? Did these scenarios really take place? Were they not allowed to gain education and teachings? Well, I don't know where these claims come from. Karna was indeed a student of Drona, Drona Acharya, who taught the uh, the uh, the Kauravas, right? I mean, how did Karna become a, a bosom friend of... of uh, What's his name? Duryodhan. How did they meet? They met while being trained by this great uh, guru, Dronacharya, in the the various uh, martial arts. So Karna did receive martial arts instruction from Dronacharya. I don't know what distortions have been made to the story. I think there are certain Indian serials that depict the scenario differently. But if you read the actual text of the Mahabharata, you will know that Karna did indeed receive instruction from from Duranacharya. So there is no discrimination there. There was afterwards, later, a a tournament, an archery uh, contest in which the Kauravas and Pandavas competed against each other or something like that. And before each contestant was to start his uh, demonstration, of his, of his uh, prowess, each contestant was supposed to announce their lineage. So the Pandavas and the koras were clearly royalty. They had royal lineages and Karna did not have that. So that's why before Karna could announce his lineage, Duryodhan uh, said that he is not a king, but uh, Duryodhan made him the king of Anga, I think, Bengal. So that elevated Karna to the status of king. So obviously there was a difference between the aristocracy, the royalty and common people. That exists everywhere in the world. I don't call that discrimination of any kind. Unless you're a Marxist. I mean, even in a Marxist society you have classes. There's no such thing as classless society. Now what about Eklavya? Well, Dronacharya was the teacher of royalty. His his vocation, his, his, his job, he was employed by the aristocracy, by the royalty, right? By the, by the Kauravas. To teach the Kauravas. I mean, he, I know that he was a great teacher. He was good at teaching martial arts. It doesn't mean he, he was in a position to accept any random student who came up to him and said, I want to, I want you to be my guru. It doesn't work like that. He was not the only guru in Bharat Varsha. There were thousands of such gurus. But Eklavya wanted to be his Shishya and Dronacharya had to refuse it, right? So I don't call this discrimination. It's not a case of discrimination. So basically what happens is that these ancient stories are twisted, they are distorted and they are portrayed in various negative ways by either the popular media, you know, these various serials cinema, etc., and even by various historians. Right? So that's what's done and that's why we come up with these notions and these beliefs. Saurabh asks, Is it true that women and Shudras were not allowed to read the Vedas because they were perceived as unequal and came lowest in the caste and social hierarchy? And there were also quotes written in the Vedas that they will be punished for it, or is it just fabricated fake story? Okay, so first of all, uh, I have said I have uh, stated this in the past that the Rig Veda, that a significant percentage of the verses of the Rig Veda were written by women. So if women wrote a significant portion of the Rig Veda, then how is it that they would not be allowed to re- read the Vedas? It doesn't make any sense. So that is completely complete nonsense. And once again, this notion that Shudras or whatever were not allowed to read the Vedas and there was this caste hierarchy and all that nonsense. You know, this caste, I have not spoken about caste yet because I need to do a proper exposition on that. But this entire notion of caste, these four different social groups, this stratification, it is a colonial invention. India was home to the Jati and Varna system, which is a very complex arrangement. It's not an arrangement, it's something that just grew organically out of Indian society. Jatis and Varnas, right? These are different occupations and and different clans and groupings and lineages. We have never had these four groupings. The Manuspriti does does kind of allude to, to four categories of people based upon their occupations and all that. But it was never rigid, it was never set in stone. There was always social mobility. The person, the great man who wrote the Ramayana was born in a certain social category and by the time he was done with his work, he was at the highest social category as 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 the author of one of the great texts of India. I think he was a robber or something, Angulimal, and he became Valmiki, the great Saint, the great sage. So that shows that through your actions, you could rise to any status. And again, this claim that certain social strata were not allowed to read the Vedas, well that is debunked by the works of the great uh, of of Dharampal. Dharampal compiled an extensive set of statistics from the 19th century during the British occupation of India he compiled statistics about the ancient Indian pre-Macaulayan indigenous education system, and what he found is is it may it's as clear as day. Boys and girls got were equal were equal when it comes to education. They both got the same education, and again, boys and girls of every single class or so-called caste of society were all they all got the same education in India's ancient education system. So all these claims that are made by western historians and marxist historians these are aimed at dividing and fragmenting indian society and making indians ashamed of who they are these are lies these are fabrications do not believe them believe data believe facts facts are available but they are not but they are hidden away you know they are not made widely widely available you need to know where to go and look and look at them that's the problem the truth is hidden away even though it is available, but it's hidden away in various deep recesses of the world. And the lies are spread everywhere through our education system. That's the problem. Right, what happened to Dwarka? How did it end up under the sea? Is the city still intact under the sea? So the uh, western region of India, the region of Saurashtra and Kutch is seismically very active we know that there are earthquakes there on a regular basis and pretty strong earthquakes so in the late 19th century you had this terrible earthquake in kutch i am not sure what where it was on the Richter scale but it was quite catastrophic and in the early 21st century i think in 2001 or 2 or something there was another devastating earthquake in kutch which essentially destroyed the old city of buj now you have a new city of buj which is the de facto capital of the region of kutch so this region has always been prone to strong earthquakes sometimes devastating earthquakes it is a consequence of the slamming of the indian tectonic plate in the indian landmass into eurasia which gave rise to the himalayas the greatest mo- the tallest mountains on the earth and this region is always going to be seismically active you're always going to have earthquakes like the Nepal earthquake, the Uttarakhand earthquake, the various Kutch earthquakes, the earthquakes that you have in the northeast region of India, etc. And the Andaman earthquake as well. So this, so because of this, I think that... So what is recorded in the Mahabharat is that Arjun was in Dwarka when this incident happened. There was a terrible earthquake. And the entire city of Dwarka slid under the ocean and was swallowed up by the sea. So it's clearly, uh, this clearly d- describes a very violent seismic event. Uh, it is known that l- that uh, land shifts during violent earthquakes. You sometimes have the rising up of islands in the middle of the ocean out of nowhere. Sometimes entire islands disappear. So this city was a coastal city. And it clearly went under the sea because of a, of a strong earthquake. And then the people who survived recreated a, a new city, new Dwarka, where near where the old dwarka was once was and today if you just go into the sea off the coast of new dwarka you will find that there is this ancient city still sunken down there so it is a fact that's how it ended up ended up under the sea is the city still intact under the sea it's not intact it's very old carbon dating only one piece of wood has been carbon dated it was dated to around 8000 bce which is about 10000 years before today so that would place the Mahabharata very old, I mean, around 10,000 years ago or 8,000. I'm, I'm not sure exactly how old it is. It's about eight or 10,000 years old, that particular piece of wood that was carbon dated. So I think we need to do more investigations to ascertain the time at which the approximate time period in which this event happened. But the city is very old. It is, it's been under the ocean for thousands of years. So obviously the quality of the artifacts and all that must have degraded. And today you have all the dredging that's happening in the harbor at Dwarka. So these activities are actually destroying what is left of, of ancient Dwarka. And this is being done. I mean, I, I'm not. I don't understand how these activities are allowed in such an important archaeological site. So the city is not intact. It is under great threat today. Rahul asks, "Is that is it true that Helen and Chandragupta were lovers and that they wrote letters to each other, that caused marriage and Indo-Greek collaboration?" Here's what happened. Chandragupta Maurya was the first; he was the founder of the Mauryan dynasty, the Mauryan Empire. Uh, his mentor was the great Vishnugupta Chanakya. Now, in the beginning of Chandragupta's reign as emperor of India, uh you had this Greek uh, invader called Seleucus Nicator who tried to invade Western India. He was one of the generals of Alexander. So Seleucus tried to invade Western India and there was conflict between the Mauryan Empire and Seleucus Nicator. The invasion wasn't successful in any way, but the two sides made, came to an agreement. They made an alliance and the alliance was sealed by uh by chandragupta accepting seleucus nicator's daughter as his wife so basically this made seleucus nicator chandragupta's father-in-law and therefore there was no possibility of conflict once you are once you are family and and uh, chandragupta gave 500 war elephants to his father-in-law as a gift and seleucus used that to consolidate his empire in Western Asia and Central Asia and all, all that. So Seleucus was, a I think, he was one of the greatest uh, Greek conquerors, you know, Seleucus Nicator, Chandragupta's father-in-law. So Chandragupta did have a Greek wife, the daughter of Seleucus. I don't know what her name was. Okay. So this was a political alliance. It was a political marriage. That's, that's how things were done. Oh, Always, you know, political marriages. So yes, one of his wives, he had several wives as the emperor of India. One of his wife, wives was the daughter of Seleucus Nicator. I am not sure if, the, if this lady was the mother of Bindusar, who succeeded Chandragupta, who was Chandragupta's son and the second emperor of the Mauryan Empire. But yes, one of his wives was Greek. We don't know what her name was. I think there are some Indian TV serials who have portrayed a Greek lady called Helen as Chandragupta's lover or girlfriend or whatever who becomes a wife. That's all fiction. The truth is, the facts that we have at our disposal are what I just outlined. We don't know what her name was. Okay, Hussein asks, please shed some light on native Indian wars against the East India Company and the British. I see a list of battles mentioned in Wikipedia. There's a link there. However, these battles are generally ignored and not discussed. And what's not discussed is how Indians tried to fight invaders, just like the Native Americans fought. Yeah, good question. I've opened this link uh, here. Let Let me share it. Just give me a minute. Let me share that. I will share the link that you have mentioned. Here we are. Okay, so this is tribal revolts in India before Indian independence, a list of such revolts in the 18th century, the 19th century, which you have many more, and the 20th century before independence. So yes, there is a great deal of of uh, pushback against the British occupation of India by various people who are described as tribals in this particular article. So yes, we did have that. Now let's understand what really happened. So what happened is that you had a number of tribal revolts. And these were basically by people who dwelled, who lived in various forests. So India was, was replete with forests uh, in those days. Today, the forest cover in India is about 10-12% of the entire uh, land area. I think during the 19, 18th and 19th centuries, it, it was much more. So what happened is that the British had created these so-called Forest Protection acts. Okay the colonial British government of India. So basically, this converted about a quarter or a fifth of India's land mass into so-called protected forests, which were actually prime hunting ground for the British. So the British always had this tradition of protected forests in England. From the time of William the Conqueror and his descendants, etc., you had these protected forests in England, which were, which only had one purpose, to serve as hunting grounds for the royalty. So no commoner was allowed to be, to come into that forest, to trespass into the forest, and if any commoner would do that, and would actually kill a deer or something, that person would be hanged. So these forests, these protected forests, like the new forest in which William Rufus died by accident, apparently. That's another story. So these forests were basically nothing but hunting grounds for the royalty. So once the British occupied India, they did the same thing here in India. And they called it the uh, Forest Protection Act. But it was basically just to turn a quarter of India's landmass into hunting grounds, prime hunting grounds for not the royalty, but for the British officers, etc., of the East India Company. So the forests, basically, almost all the forests in India were made into government property. Exclusive hunting rights were given to the British officers. And India's puppet kings, so-called princely rulers, they acted as agents of the British. So whatever forest land would fall under the domain, the the nominal domain of of a princely ruler was basically, they would act as conservators and agents of the British in that, right? So what happened was that these British overlords of India would would hunt in these exclusive forest lands. And at the same time, the native tribes, people, et cetera, who lived there for thousands of years, they were denied any kind of subsistence activities there. No hunting, no cutting of trees, just for basic subsistence activities. They were denied that. So they were denied the livelihood and the lifestyle they had carried on for thousands of years by the British. And this is one of the prime reasons why all these tribes people in interior parts of India and the various forested parts of India they rose up repeatedly in revolts against the British. And these were crushed mercilessly. I mean, God knows what what sort of atrocities were done by the British during this time. Nothing is recorded. Our historians don't care. So these are the reasons why these things happened. Now you have uh things like the Anglo-Manipuri War listed over here. I mean the Manipuris are not tribals, but even that is listed here. So th- th- I mean, there's a lot that happened during this time. There's a lot of pushback, there was a lot of uh resistance, armed resistance of the British during this time. Okay, one second. Yes, so see, yeah, so that's the answer to this question in very brief. It's a very, very big topic, obviously. Okay, this is by Sharad. Sir, don't you feel now that treachery is so inherent in our people? Uh, every person from the ruling class, from clerks to IAS, everyone tries to trample upon others. No sense of community and my people anymore. I wish there was another great ruler who unites us, but. They don't end up creating a rules-based meritocratic society. Breaks my heart, but I'm at a loss for new thoughts for India to revive us. Okay, so, what, okay, so that's a great deal to unpack, but I will just deal with one thing. One, The, the main premise here is that treachery is so inherent in our people. So this is a, an idea or a belief that is, I think, ingrained in us that treachery is very common in India. It is very inherent to the Indian people. India produces traitors in great quantities. I have heard people from all walks of life life say this. I have heard military generals say this, right? People who served in the Indian armed forces, they also believe that Indians have this tendency to be traitors. So this is not true. And let me, let me share some interesting information with you. Okay, so let's take a look at this. 1980. This is the FBI website, okay? The FBI, United States. 1985 was the year of the spy. The Cold War was in its last gasps, but you would never have guessed it by all the moles in the US government who were passing secrets to the Soviet Union. So you had all these different spies, John Anthony Walker Jr. He was a U.S. Navy warrant officer who worked for the Soviet Union, who passed secrets, top cryptographic secrets to the Soviets for more than 17 years, compromising at least 1 million classified messages. He recruited three other people with security clearances into his espionage ring, his brother, his son, and his friend, etc. You had Jonathan J. Pollard, who was in the intelligence in the Navy's Anti-Terrorist Center. You had Sharon Mary Scranage, CIA clerk stationed in Ghana, uh, Larry Wutai-Chin, who worked for China, and so many other people. This is just one year, it was called the year of the spy, but it the 1980s were actually the decade of the spy. The United States has disc had discovered during the during the Cold War hundreds of Americans employed by the US government, employed in very sensitive jobs, who were passing secrets to the Soviet Union. And the same goes for the for the UK. Kim Philby is one of the most famous spies uh of the UK who defected to the USSR. Right? So this goes on to show that this treachery. Is is something that that uh, that is part of every society. A certain percentage of the population of any society is going to have antisocial, criminal, or treacherous tendencies. It's just a statistical fact, my friends. But we tend to somehow our historians and our leaders somehow tend to focus on the negatives all the time. And we don't focus on the great heroes we have produced. Of course, every nation is going to have some traitors. I just showed you some examples in the West. The West, I think the uh, the percentage of traitors was much more in the West. And when you have a society that is under foreign occupation, they're going to ensure that they find the the traitors and use them for their benefit. So, so, So that's all it is. It's not like treachery is inherent to our people? Absolutely not. I disagree with that. I think the people of India traditionally have had great ethics and morals because of our culture and civilization. Today, of course, things have changed, but I disagree that treachery is inherent in our people. So I am very positive about India and our people and our culture and civilization. Okay, Rishabh asks, Please tell us about the origin of the Kushan Empire and the Gurjar Pratihar Empire and the relationship between them. So the origin of these two empires, that's very interesting. Uh, These are two very different uh, dynasties, empires. The Kushans uh, basically the Kushans originated in the so-called present-day Xinjiang region, which is currently occupied illegally by China. Okay, so that was the Uh, As far as we know, the homeland of the Kushan uh, people, the Tarim River river Basin, north of Ladakh, north of the Himalayas, right? So the Kushans were uh, an Indo-European people by ethnicity and by language. If you look at their genetics, which is available in abundance, their genetic lineages, the most of them had the R1A1A lineage, which is identical to what most Indian males carry today. So, essentially, they were one of these Mlecha clans that had migrated out of India north of the Himalayas several thousand years ago and they set up their kingdom over there for a very long time and eventually, about two thousand years ago, they reinvaded India, right? So it was not a foreign invasion of India. It was an invasion of India by a group or a clan or a people who had long ago migrated out of India. So they were basically coming full circle. And this is evidenced by the fact that there is not one single record of any ethnic or cultural or religious conflict between the Kushans and the Indian population. They simply assimilated harmoniously into, into Indian society, which tells you that they were culturally, linguistically, etc., ethnically, very much the same as Indians. Right? So what is the origin of the Kushans? The first uh, Kushan emperor or king that we know of is Kujula Kasa, who lived in the first century, about about 2,000 years before today. He was the great grandfather of the great emperor Kanishka, who is believed to have uh, lived in the second century. I think his His coronation is believed to be around 127 CE or thereabouts. The Kanishka the Great, one of India's greatest emperors, he was was a Kushan. And the Kushan empire lasted about three, three and a half centuries. It came to an end approximately in the middle of the fourth century, right? And its successor state was the great Gupta empire, which had no relationship with the Kushans or maybe it did, but we don't know if if there was any significant relationship. right? So the Kushans, basically their empire came to an end, and the Kushan people just quietly assimilated into Indian society in northern and western India. So I would say that the majority of people in northern, western, central India would have some Kushan ancestry, but it doesn't mean that they are not Indian, because the Kushans were the descendants of Indians anyway. So that is about the origins of the Kushans. What about the Pratiharas? The Pratiharas came into, uh, became The origin of the Pratihar Empire is in the late 7th century. Their uh, first king, the founder of the empire was a king called Nagabhatta. Now this guy, Nagabhatta, he was a feudatory. He was a vassal of the old Chavda dynasty in Rajasthan. So there were two branches of the ancient Chavda dynasty. One was uh, centered in Bhinmal in Rajasthan and the other one was in Gujarat. So the Northern branch in Binmal was in power between the 6th and the 8th centuries. And one of their vassals was this king called Nagabatta. After the northern branch of the Chawda dynasty declined and fell out of power, Nagabatta became a king in his own right. And he was a king in the 8th century. right? So, and the great so that is the origin of the Pratihara dynasty, the Pratihar Empire, and their great greatest uh, king was Mihir Bhoj, I think, who lived in the 9th century. And the uh, this dynasty also came to an end in the 11th century when uh, Mahamud Ghazni sacked and conquered Kannauj, the guy who was repeatedly uh, pardoned by Indians who defeated him. That guy, so it's a lesson of history we should never have pardoned and let that guy go and escape with his life anyhow so i hope that gives you an idea of the origins of the kushan empire and the gurjar empire rishikesh asks as per historical view what's the difference between rajputs and kshatriya is it right that modern rajputs are descendants of white huns Scythians or shakas if not where are these communities gone Okay, so first of all, there is no difference between Rajputs and Kshatriyas. I mean, Rajputs are Kshatriyas. Kshatriya, is the Kshatriya uh, part of Indian society is traditionally the people who have been warriors as their primary occupation, and the Rajputs were that. So the uh, question of the origin of the Rajputs is, is very much open today because there's no research being done in, about this. See, the Indian historians hate the Rajputs <laughs> because. Uh, Because they represent the best of Indian society. They were very brave. They were glorious. They were valorous. And they defended India for centuries. I mean, look at what happened in Persia. The the demographics and religion of Persia changed completely within a couple of decades after the Arabic invasion of Persia. Just within 20-30 years, the entirety of Persia was completely transformed. It had become an Islamic country, as we know very well. Now, when these Turkic, Arabic, etc., invasions of India happened, India resisted for centuries. And the spearhead of the Indian resistance, the great the great shield of India, were the Rajputs. The Rajputs defended India for centuries. They were unmatched in their bravery and and, and valor. And also to some extent in their stupidity, because they allowed people like Mahmud, Mahmud of Ghazni to get away with his life twice at least. But the Rajputs, despite their failings, despite their lack of unity, etc., they defended India stoutly. They shed more blood than any other people in defense of the motherland. And that's why the Indian Marxist historians hate the Rajputs. And that's why their accomplishments are always denigrated or or, uh, not spoken about. And that's why there's no research being done into the origin of the Rajputs. So there are three different uh, uh, schools of thought. One is that they are descendants of the White Huns, the Shweta Hunas. The second is that they are descendants of, uh, of uh, these Scythians, the Scythians, the Indo Scythians, who were again descendants of ancient Indians. They were Mlecchas, and there is a third school of thought which says that the Rajputs are Indo-Iranians, indo sasanians So we don't we don't really know what it is. So for example. Let's take the Chowda dynasty, for example, because that's something I've researched because of my own personal interest. So, this is an ancient Rajput lineage. So, there are so there is one so the uh, oldest records of this dynasty uh, come from ancient Indian uh, records, the Prabhanda, the Prabhanda, Chintamani, etc. And the British have uh, recorded this in in English. So, according to one version of the British history of the Chowdas. The Chavdas were the descendants of the great king Nahapana, who was a Kshatrapa, who was a Scythian, an Indo-Scythian king. He was a very great king. He, was, he, he is mentioned in the Greek account called the Periplus of the Erythrean Sea. So he was a very great ruler, but he is not spoken about. I mean, no one in India knows about him today. So according to one version of the British history of the Chavdas, the Chavdas are descendants of, the, of, of this king, Nahapana. According to another version which you will find in the, the Numismatic Museum in Mumbai, it says that the Chavdas are Indo-Sassanians, which means that they are Indo-Iranians. Now, again, the Iranians are essentially part of the same ethnic group as the Indians, although most of us don't know that. So that is a, a div, another theory. And there's another another thing as well, another data point. The oldest, one of the oldest references the, to the Chavda dynasty is the Sri Chapa uh, dynasty, which is the old name of the Chavdas. So, the oldest recorded king of the Sri Chapa dynasty was a king called Vyagra in Binnamal in Rajasthan. And this guy, the oldest recorded, the first recorded Chavda, was a first generation immigrant to India. He was a Shweta Huna. So, he was a white Hun. So, if this is the truth about the origin, then this Rajput lineage is of white Hun origin. Otherwise it is of Scythian origin or the third possibility is that it is of Indo-Iranian origin. So this is the kind of confusion we have today about the Rajputs. We have no idea what the truth is. Maybe it's a mixture of everything, but it doesn't really matter because we are all Indians. And even these Sasanians were of the same ethnicity as us. Even the Scythians were the same ethnicity as us. And we don't really know who the white Huns were. But they were clearly not Mongols or Turks. So it's all up in the air right now. We don't really know what the origins are, but it's a fascinating topic of research. Okay, Nishant asks, why is it that the Mughals succeeded in ruling India for such a long period of time, despite India having a long legacy of great kings and warriors like the Rajputs and the Marathas, Were they militarily advanced or did we lack unity or is it something else? It's very simple. You can be the bravest people in the world, but if you lack unity, you can be defeated by an invading force. So these uh, Mughals, they ruled India for about three centuries. I think Humayun came to power in India around 1526 or, or something like that. I don't remember all the dates. I don't have to memorize them because you can always look them up. I think it was 1526, if I'm not mistaken. And Aurangzeb died in the 18th century. And the final end of the Mughal Empire is said to be in 1857. So that's uh, about 300 years, approximately. Yeah. So it was not a very long period of time. But the reason these Turks, whether it is the Mamluks, the Delhi Sultanate or the Mughals, The reason they were able to rule India, invade India successfully, conquer India, parts of India, not the entirety of India. The reason they could do this was because India was at the time not politically united. It was a fragmented nation, a fragmented civilization. You had lots of little kings, small kings, all fighting each other. There was a lack of unity. So these Rajputs, like you said, they were very brave, etc. But they were not united. That is what led to the eventual long-term downfall of India, right? And this is something you see everywhere. I mean, I have made a video about Chinggis Khan. I have studied Mongolia extensively. So Mongolia was fragmented as a nation, as a culture, as a people for centuries. And that is what the Chinese exploited repeatedly for centuries. And it took one great man to unite the entire nation, Chinggis Khan. And he had to struggle for several decades It it is only in his late 40s that he was finally able to unify every single warring clan of his people under his rule. And it is then that he started his conquest of half the world. So unless you are united, you will always be under the thumb of a foreign power, like the Mongols were under China, and like we were under the Turks. So it is all about a lack of unity. The Mongols had, had always been great warriors, but because of their lack of unity, the Chinese could manipulate them any t- any way they wanted. Indians were also, we always have had this martial tradition, this great warrior tradition from the time of the Mahabharata and the Ramayana. So despite having this great tradition, because of this lack of unity that we had at the time, that is why these foreigners were able to rule us. okay kandarp asks according to prithviraj raso written by chand bardai prithviraj chauhan defeated muhammad ghori 17 times and let him go every time but the 18th time muhammad ghori captured him etc however i say that there is only two battles there were only two battles of tarain and prithviraj was defeated in the second battle which one should be considered true So, okay, you are right. According to this poem, Prithviraj Raso, written by Chand Bardai, it is said in this this account that Prithviraj defeated Muhammad Ghori 17 times and let him go away 17 times. So, you see, my friends, uh, I do not think that Prithviraj Chauhan was that monumentally stupid. Okay? I don't think he was that stupid. I know that I have criticized him for letting Muhammad Ghori get go away with his get away with his life in the first battle of Tarain, def, despite defeating him, I don't think he would have done that twice, let alone seventeen times. The second time, if Prithviraj had won, I think he would have killed Muhammad Ghori, but unfortunately, he had let him go the first time, and the second time he was defeated. So the truth is that there were only two battles. Seventeen is nonsense. I mean, this guy Chand Bardai he composed this poem in order to glorify. Prithviraj Chauhan, despite his defeat. But I think he is he's basically done the opposite of that. He's tried to portray Prithviraj Chauhan as a very stupid person. Letting somebody go away 17 times. I think nobody is that stupid in the world. And Prithviraj was not that stupid a person. He was a great king. He was a very brave man. He was just uh, misguided, I would say. He, he had the wrong notions of chivalry and nobility. Chivalry and nobility is to be reserved for your people not for the opponent not for the enemy not for somebody who who wishes you destroyed and 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 enslaved so the correct version is that there were two battles of tarain the first one we won the second one we lost and we know what happened after that Okay, Pritam asks, some Western people are trying to inherit yoga as a part of Christianity and most of the leftists show yoga as not a part of Hinduism. What are its consequences? We need to preserve our roots and slam these these people. Yes, so in the West, the West is now appropriating yoga. They are coming up with new forms of yoga, hot yoga and cold yoga and drunk yoga and beer yoga and goat yoga and what not. And we have allowed this to happen. And now people are saying it is part of Christianity. There's Christian yoga as well. And many people claim that yoga is nothing but a set of exercises that the British had introduced into India. The truth is that you have statuettes of people in yogic asanas during that date back to the Harappan times. So it's clear that yoga is, is something that was... Uh, that emerged in india it is very much part of hinduism it is part of the yoga school of thought of indian of hindu philosophy okay so uh, which is which owes its uh, birth to the great hindu sage patanjali so yoga is very much a part of india but we have let it slip away from us what can be done about this it's very simple just like in kung fu there's only one institute that sets the standards which is the Shaolin temple. Similarly, in India we need to create a world yoga standards institute. That's all we need to do. And this institute must declare that the standards of yoga will be decided by this institute only and nobody else. So it will be the final authority of deciding what is yoga and what is not yoga. That's all India needs to do to reclaim this and prevent this theft of our culture and tradition. So, my question is why is the government of India not doing this? Is it so hard to do? Does it take a lot of money to do this? Do we not have a lot of money in India? I just don't understand, really. Very disappointing. Ishwar asks, India has a rich cultural history which can be seen through our monuments and engineering marvels, yet India has only 38 UNESCO World Heritage Sites compared to that with Italy 55, France 41, UK 32, China many more, in spite of their smaller geographical extent and history than India. What's the reason for this? What are the criteria for, for selecting places as UNESCO World Heritage Sites? Excellent question, my friend. Yeah, these little countries, these tiny pieces of geography, they have more UNESCO World Heritage sites in India. And if you look at the list of World Heritage sites in India, you will see that a significant percentage of these so-called World Heritage sites are colonial sites, either Turkic uh, monuments like Humayun's tomb or the, what's, what's it called? The, what's the tower? there's a tower right in delhi i forgot the name whatever the tower is Kutub, Kutub minar yes and then you have these churches and convents in goa which are built on top of destroyed hindu temples and so much more you have the so called uh, the the victoria terminus station in mumbai which is now called as shivaji chhatrapati shivaji terminus now it is a british uh, it is a british building the british constructed it with our money <laughs> And then you have the uh, Art Deco buildings in South Mumbai, which are a world heritage site. In what way do do these sites represent India's heritage? I just don't understand the criteria that we employ to uh, to, to nominate structures and sites as UNESCO world heritage sites. And the second question I would like to raise is that why do we need the UNESCO stamp on our heritage? Why do we need that? Why can't we create our own list of national heritage sites that have nothing to do with the UNESCO? We can decide on our own, instead of every year petitioning the the UNESCO to accept our our humble demand, our our humble request to make this site a unesco Heritage site. Why do we need that? Why can't we have our own standards? Why can't we have our own list of Indian national heritage sites? Why do we need the UN stamp of approval? I simply do not understand the slave-mindedness that permeates our governance system. I simply don't understand it. When will we decolonize our minds? Really, it's, it's frustrating. Okay, one more question. Nimit asks, Nimit says, you say that our constitution is made up of sections from western constitutions what would an what would an original indian constitution look like so you see nimit i don't say it you all you have to do is take a look at the indian constitution and show me which part is indian so there is this uh, us supreme court judge who who has written written this he has written that a constitution is the conscience of the nation. It is the morality of the nation. So what a constitution is essentially, it's the the moral foundations of the legal system and everything else in a country. It's the ethical foundation of everything that is in the country, all the institutions, the laws, everything. So that's what a constitution is. Now our constitution says that India is a secular socialist republic. Is secularism something that comes out of Indian values and morality and ethics? Is secularism something that was part of India's civilization? It is not. Is socialism something that emerged out of India's ancient history? It's not. Is the Indian penal code? Okay, it's not the constitution, etc. But if you look at all the sections of the constitution, etc. Show me one thing that comes out of India's jurisprudence, India's uh, f- India's foundational texts like the Vedas or anything, anything, does it recognize the fact that India is the world's oldest civilization? It does not. So there is absolutely nothing Indian about India's constitution. It is something that has been imposed upon us. It is a foreign morality. It is a foreign conscious conscience that has been imposed upon the nation. India already had a conscience, a morality, a set of moral principles, a set of ethical principles. Now we are told that this foreign set of principles has to be adopted and it is being, it has been adopted in India. So it is basically a colonial imposition upon us. What would an Indian constitution look like? It would be based on Indian values... Indian cultural and civilizational values. If you look at the Mahajanapadas and ancient Indian governance systems, the king was elected by the people, right, firstly. And secondly, the king had a very simple duty. He, his job, his duty was to serve the people, serve the, the state or the country, and to serve Dharma. These were the simple duties of the king and that was the morality that the king was expected to follow. So an Indian constitution has to be based on those principles, as simple as that. It has to be based on dharma, not on secularism or or any other nonsensical thing import from the West. So that's what an Indian constitution should should look like. Constitutions are man-made things constitutions are temporary as history has shown throughout. So I think we need to reconsider this constitution. There are many countries that have thrown out the old constitution and and created new ones. Sri Lanka has done that. France has done that several times and many other countries have done that. So if India is to decolonize someday and become a self-respecting country that others will also respect someday then it needs to to reject this fake constitution and come up with its own original dharmic constitution that's what needs to happen i hope that answers several questions okay my friends i'm going to take up a couple of live chat questions and so let's let me take a look at what you guys are talking about nishchay asks if not secular then what would india be dharmic it is the best uh, form of governance and 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 of it's the best uh, set of moral and ethical values. And it, it, it doesn't mean that it is anti-minority or anything, right? Because in, in dharma, everybody is considered to be the same. Everybody is considered equal. Everybody gets the same rights. So a dharmic constitution, a dharmic set of rules and laws would be inherently superior to these fake Western moral laws and all, all that. So that's what India should be okay what else do we have let me take up some other questions tell us something about hussein brahmins and imam hussein's army i'm afraid i don't know anything about this i'm i'm, I'm sorry i don't know anything about this okay uh some more questions. Are today's Guptas the descendants of the Gupta Empire? We are not sure if there is a one-to-one correspondence between the Gupta Empire, the Gupta dynasty, and the people who have the Gupta surname today. Once again, there is a lack of information, there is a lack of data. And therefore, we cannot tell with the current state of historical research that we have today, whether there is a one-to-one correspondence between the people who have the surname today and the ancient Gupta Empire. So it's something our historians need to take up. Harsh asks, what was the extent of knowledge of the world's geography the ancient Indians had during the Ramayan and Mahabharata era as described in those texts? So I think uh, during the Vedic ages, uh, the Indians knew a great deal about the northern parts of Asia, because uh, they spoke in. The, there is some uh, references to a place where you have a, n- a night that lasts many days and daytime that lasts many days, which seems to be the polar regions of northern Asia. So clearly, the Indians had had ventured all the way north, according to if if we if those if these uh, texts are giving us the correct interpretation. So it looks like Indians ventured a great, great deal north, almost into the polar regions. And during Ashok's time, it is, it is known that he was aware of the, of the king of Egypt, Ptolemy, and various other kings to the far to the west of India. So India did have a great deal of knowledge of the world's geography. Obviously, we did not know everything because it was too far away. We did not have aircraft and satellites those days. So, obviously, the entire geography of the world may not have been known, possibly, but clearly there was a great deal of knowledge. The entire extent of the knowledge can only be ascertained once once we analyze all these ancient texts. So that is something that needs to be taken up. Aditya asks, do you believe that Netaji died in a plane crash? Or survived and lived as Gumnami Baba till 85, and was he present with Lal Bahadur Shastri in Tashkent? I don't think he died in any plane crash. I think he survived. I think it is most likely that he he was the the person who is called Gumnami Baba. So I think that that story is is more credible than the plane crash theory. I don't think he was present with Lal Bahadur Shastri in Tashkent. There is a photograph in which it seems there seems to be a person who looks somewhat like Netaji Subhash Bose, but there's another image in which the same person looks different. So I don't think that theory is, is very credible. Okay, let me take one more question before I end this session. okay akshit asks can india use chanakya's arthashastra for about political science and economics to progress absolutely yes those are timeless principles that are uh, expounded upon and described in great detail in the arthashastra i think i have the book somewhere here so it tells you a lot about this kind of the system of taxation that was prevalent in those days the kind of economics you had the kind of geopolitics that was uh, that is that he prescribed, Vishnu Gupta prescribed and the kind of statecraft that he prescribed and those are timeless principles. India can, can benefit a lot if India's present day leadership were to follow those principles. India would benefit a lot from that. Unfortunately, we have forgotten about Chanakya and we are worshipping Gandhi. So that is the great tragedy of India today. Alright, my friends, thank you very much. Uh, I'm going to wrap it up now. It's been 90 plus minutes. Thank you so much for participating. Thank you for your wonderful questions. And I will see you in the next episode. Thank you very much. Have a good night. And before I before I wrap it up, I would like to thank all of you who have become members of this channel. I very, very much appreciate it. Thank you so much. And with that, I bid you all a good day and a good night. And I will see you in the next episode. Bye.